Life Audio. Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I am your host, Perseus Poku. On today's episode, we wanted to talk about the trustworthiness of the New Testament. The trustworthiness of the New Testament. And after a word from our sponsors, we'll get started on the topic today. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. And what we're essentially saying is our New Testament can be trusted. We can trust it in terms of historicity. Uh, We can trust it in terms of theology. We can trust it in terms of its affirmations. And we can trust it in terms of its negations. So the trustworthiness of our New Testament is what we want to talk about for today's episode. On the previous episode, we talked about the Bible as history, and we began a discourse on the archaeological evidence that supports uh, the Bible claims, uh, some of the events that the Bible talked about. We even highlighted Dr. Luke and the book of Acts and how accurate his details were in terms of identifying countries, identifying uh, people, identifying leaders, uh, identifying regions. So the Bible can be trusted in what it affirms. Now, the question arise uh, for believers is what other information or what other resources do we have uh, to answer or respond to the skeptics in our lives, those people that are determined uh, to ask questions about our faith, which is fine. It's fair question uh, for people to ask us about our faith. Even Peter alludes to that. He says, be ready to give each man or woman an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within you, and to do it with gentleness and respect, First Peter 3.15. So on today's episode, we just kind of want to highlight some of the things, um, in, especially in terms of archaeology, that we can look at, uh, which supports the Bible claims. 
Uh, and one of those things is uh, found in Acts 21:29. And in Acts 21:29, if you read the story, it talks about um, how the rules for the temple um, was presented in a way to keep Gentiles in a certain area, meaning that the Gentile, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't go into other areas that were reserved for Jews only. And archaeology um, found a stone that had inscription on it, which basically affirmed what Luke had already wrote about uh, in the first century. It's a Greek inscription on the marble sign, which read, no Gentile may enter the enclosing screen around the temple. Whoever is caught with, with, caught in this area that's a Gentile will have himself to blame that his death results. So, again, here is a marble stone with Greek inscription, basically reaffirming what Ju- uh, uh, Luke um, wrote about in the first century. And this is archaeology catching up to what the Bible has already written about. Then another one is dealing with um, the amphitheater of Ephesus, Acts 19 and 29. And this amphitheater just so happens to have 25,000 seats at the time. Political and religious discussions uh, were hosted. Plays were hosted. Uh, They even had gladiator sports in Ephesus. And we all know as we read the book of Ephesus, as we read the book of Acts, um, that Paul had dealings in this amphitheater uh, for he was being accused of disturbing the uh, economical process of Ephesus. Uh, Paul and his uh, colleagues, when they entered Ephesus, they started sharing the gospel. And as a result of the good news being shared, people started uh, accepting Christ and denouncing their um, demigod worship. Uh, they they start denouncing uh, the goddess Artemis, uh, who was the goddess of the underworld, which the Ephesians um, boldly worship. And so one of the lessons we learn as Christians is once we accept Christ, not everything carries over. If you um, deify something or you used to believe in certain gods, well, you have to give it up when you accept Christ because our God is a jealous God. Our God is a God uh, not made with hands, as I repeatedly say. Our God says we should have no other gods beside him. So what we see in Ephesus is this demonstration of faith where new converts started um, worshiping Jesus and denouncing the gods that they used to worship. So as a result, those that um, used to make money off of this uh, goddess, uh, the amulets that were being created, the uh, stone statues that were being created, uh, all these things that brought in uh, money to the economy of Ephesus um, was dwindling. And so um, the people that were against it were the people that were making money from creating these different things, uh, dealing with Artemis, the goddess of the underworld. Um, they started losing money, 
and the people in charge in Ephesus were upset with Paul because he was messing with the economy. And so uh, we still have this theater today, meaning you can go and see the ruins of the theater in Ephesus. And again, you'll find the story in Acts 19, verse 29. And then in terms of uh, Artemis, um, there was a discovery uh, of a temple of Artemis. So everything that uh, the book of Acts talks about um, when archaeology comes into effect, you can see that the, the, the book is affirmed. You can see that the book is true. Uh, so archaeology is just backing up what the Bible already says. Then we look at the manuscripts, and you may be asking yourself, what is a manuscript? Again, the topic this, uh, today is the trustworthiness of the New Testament. And you may be asking yourself, uh, what is or what are uh, the New Testament manuscripts? Now, the manuscripts are copies. That's what it means. Uh, they are copies of the original. And the original are called autographs. The original, uh, man, the original documents, rather, are the ones that were penned by the apostles themselves or their scribes. Again, the originals are called autographs. But the copies of the originals are called manuscripts. And that's what we have. We have ancient manuscripts, uh, which are dated early. And again, the earlier the date, uh, the more probability of it being truthful because the further away you have a collection of writing from the original uh, time of the event, uh, the more probabilities that uh, lies sn uh, sneak in, um, that faulty memory uh, change stories because of a long period of time. But the earlier the documents, the more uh, probability you have that uh, the story that they're talking about is accurate. So if I can just make it really transparent, if something happened yesterday, it's easier for you to remember the details than 50 years from now. Not saying that 50 years from now, it, you wouldn't be able to remember the details, but between those 50 years, there's a possibility that some details may change due to human uh, age and due to other issues. So the closer a document is to the time of the event, uh, the more reliable in terms of probabilities that it is. Let us take a break to recognize our sponsors and we'll be right back. So when we talk about autographs, we said it's the originals then the copies are called manuscripts. And for the Christian, um, the vast majority of our manuscripts were found in three main locations, um, not exclusively, but primarily. So the three major New Testament manuscript groupings are called the Western Manuscript, the Byzantium Manuscripts, and the Alexandria Manuscript. Uh, the oldest group of manuscripts date back to the second and first century. So it's important to note uh, that we have a manuscripts that dates within the century, which is excellent according to ancient historians. 
uh, especially if you can get it 50 years from the event, it's ex- that means that it's, it's more likely truthful. And we have that. We have that in an ancient document, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So our group, in terms of where your Bible comes from, the, where your New Testament comes from, the majority of manuscripts uh, can be found in the Western groupings, the Byzantine, Byzantium grouping, and Alexandrian uh, grouping. So keep, keep that in the back of your mind. And in these manuscripts are responsible for the different uh, translations. So when your uh, publisher decides to publish a Bible, they have to decide which group of manuscripts they're going to use or what collection of manuscripts they're going to use. And these manuscripts uh, uh, eventually become our different translations of the Bible, whether it's Amplified or Contemporary English or Good News or Homing or Living or The Message or New American uh, Standard Bible or New International. Uh, All of these different types of Bibles are derived from the manuscripts. So it's important to note that. Now, Bible translations based on New Testament variances. Um, If you look at the Bible, uh, sometimes you'll see that certain texts say one thing, but then you go to another book and it seems like the the other books may be saying something different. Uh, But again, if you have questions about uh, perceived contradictions in scripture, uh, go online and Google uh, Perseus Poku lo- Logos Bible Contradictions. Uh, we just finished an article with Logos Bible Software uh, where I wrote about perceived Bible contradictions. Um, there are no contradictions, but uh, uh, paradoxes. We have paradoxes. We don't have contradictions. We have paradoxes. And paradoxes are assumed contradictions, meaning that they, meet, they look contradictory on a surface level. But when you implement proper hermeneutics, uh, they're not what you think they are. Um, if, you, if, you, if you implement proper hermeneutics, you can come to the accurate interpretation of what the um, writer was trying to convey. So when we look at comparison of ancient texts, again, uh, the shorter the time is in terms of the composition from the actual events, um, the more probability in terms of its truthfulness. So let's compare the New Testament to other ancient works. So Homer, well, let me back up. The new, uh, Homer um, in terms of the number of manuscripts that we found, um, it's 1757, so uh, a little bit over 1700 for Homer's Iliad. Then Demosthenes, uh, another ancient writer, uh, we've uh, accumulated um, approximately 200 copies of his work. Then uh, Tacitus. Tacitus, we've got about 20 copies of his work. And then we talk about Caesar, and in Caesar, we have about 10 copies of his work. So let me go back um, in terms of uh, Homer's Iliad. We actually just only have 643. Demosthenes is 200. Tacitus is 20. And Caesar is 10. So again, 
from secular work, Homer's Iliad, we have about 643. Uh, but the New Testament, we have close to 6,000 copies. Why is this important? It's important because if there's ever um, some controversy over a Bible text, we can always go back to the manuscripts to determine whether or not that text is being interpreted correctly. That's the great thing about having these number of copies. Uh, They must agree in terms of following proper hermeneutics. And so if there is a Uh, an issue, a debate over a particular text, we have all of these copies to sort through to ascertain the the original meaning of that text. That's very, very important. So for the time gap, and the time gap refers to the time of the composition uh, in relationship to the actual events. Now remember, I said the closer the writing is to the event, the better chance you have to arrive at the truth. So for us, the New Testament, we have a gap of 40 years, and that's excellent, according to ancient historians. That's excellent. Homer's Iliad, you have a time gap of 400 years. Demosthenes, you have a time gap of 1,100 years. Tacitus, you have a time gap of 700 years. 50 years. Then Caesar, his Gallic Wars, there's a time gap of 950 years. So all of these other ancient manuscripts, most uh, secular people would say, yes, I believe in Homer. Yes, I believe in Tacitus. Yes, I believe in Caesar. I believe in their writings. And they don't doubt at all the, the writings belong to these individuals, and they, uh, they don't doubt the content. But when it comes to the Bible, they subjectively have um, a bias toward the Bible, a lot of people, and they, they start questioning its authenticity. But if you use the same test, the, the, the same uh, rubric with the standard of, of veracity in dealing with the New Testament as they deal with Homer and Tacitus and Caesar, we'll see that the New Testament stands far and above the most trustworthy document we have in history. So as a result of the uh, different manuscripts, we were able to produce, as a Christian family, we were able to produce some of these wonderful translations, wonderful translations. And I'm just going to take a few minutes to touch on some of these translations. For for example, the Latin Vulgate, which dates back to the late 4th century. The Wycliffe Bible, uh, which dates back to the 14th century. The Gutenberg Bible, which dates back to the 15th century. Erasmus Greek New Testament, again, in the 16th century. Tyndale Bible, 16th century. Miles Coverdale, 16th century, Geneva Bible, 16th century, and then the King James, 17th century, uh, King James published in 1611. So all of these translations are a result of what we have in the manuscripts. So the manuscripts are very important, and they are uh, trustworthy. They are trustworthy. Now, you will find some manuscripts that um, contain variances. Uh, 
meaning there are differences in spelling, as an example, uh, di- differences in grammar, but not differences in, in, in meaning. Not differences in meaning. They, uh, most of the issues deal with grammar, deals with spelling, but not uh, the message. So we're able to deduce that, or we're able to uh, know that these differences um, are not due to the message because we have so many of them. If there's one manuscript that is different, we can always go back and compare to the other 5,999 manuscript as, as an example. So we can be assured that we do have what they wrote. Now, people like Bertrand Russell, who lived from uh, 1872 to 1970, uh, he was an atheist, and he made comments such as, quote, historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all uh, in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, uh, close quote. So Mr. Russell, of course, uh, is wrong, and being a scholar, I would think that he would have done his research. Uh, he was a British philosopher of history. Now, there are numerous evidence for Jesus outside of the New Testament. So if he didn't trust the internal evidence, he could have certainly did his due diligence and looked at the outside uh, records. There are numerous evidence outside of the New Testament. If you read Robert uh, Vorst's book, Jesus Outside the New Testament, An Introduction of the Ancient Evidence, you'll see that he quotes um, and he cites Example uh, um, uh, writings about Jesus, even outside of the New Testament. Um, there's a book that cites uh, Claudius, Roman Emperor Claudius, uh, in which uh, he blamed the Christians for the issues that he was dealing with in Rome. And that didn't come from the Bible. That came from his own writing. Um, even Richard Dawkins, another uh, atheist, says there are other teachings in the New Testament that no good person should support. That's what he, he argues against the Bible, that there are no other, that there are other teachings in the New Testament that no good person should support. I refer to the central doctrine of Christianity, that of atonement for original sin, in his book, The God Delusion. So in our response, we'll say that the ability for God to save us is indeed a miraculous event. It's also mysterious by which God cleanses a filthy heart. Mysteries are indeed knowledge that belongs to God alone. However, the inability of humans to understand mystery does not change or negate the fact of the event. Every cause has an effect. The fact that we are saved demonstrates that something happened, that God touched us. God caused the actual change. Christians are not delusional, and that's my response to Richard Dawkins. So, as we move on, you'll see that we can trust the Bible, and definitely we can trust the New Testament. Flavius Josephus is a a Jewish historian, and in in his volume, The Complete Works of Josephus, translated by William Whiston, he writes the following in his book, He said, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate 
at the suggestion of the principal men among us had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again uh, the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of the Christians so named him are not, are not extinct at this day. So this is uh, Josephus who lived uh, 37 A.D. to 100 A.D., Shortly after the death of Christ, he is not a Christian, but here he is corroborating the events dealing with Christ, the crucifixion, and the post-crucifixion. He didn't have anything to gain because he's not a believer, but yet he's a historian and he had to tell the truth. So I pray that uh, this segment has emboldened you as a Christian to uh, respect and revere the New Testament as God has given it to us. Again, I pray that you are edified. Now, if you're listening to us, uh, we do thank you for your prayers. We thank you for your support. Tell others about this ministry if you're being helped. And then we also need your financial support. If you go to our website, srministries.org, or if you want to make a check, make it out to Sound Reasoning Ministries, P.O. Box 582-306, El Grove, California, 95758. We do need your financial support. And remember to always do for the truth what so many people do for a lie. May the Lord bless you. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy messages has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. And as always, we would like to thank our friends at Life Audio for their partnership with us on this broadcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you'll find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast, to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once.